remember I started a sermon series uh, this past Sunday called Uncertain, the Truth Behind... Yes, thank you. You guys are such great scholars. You listen, all right? Uncertain, the truth behind difficult times. And so uh, we're going to do part two this week. And so really excited. We had lots of guests this past Sunday. And so uh, we're excited about what God is doing. And uh, they just complimented you on your hospitality. So thank you for being so friendly, even though there is no physical contact. Thank you for being so hospitable to our guests. Amen. Just for a few moments. I know every preacher says, I'll just be a minute. I'll just preach a few moments. And and I try not to be a liar in the pulpit. I've improved over the years. You know, I've always said <laughs> in closing, in closing, in closing, I've really tried hard to improve. But um, I don't know if I have improved the last few months. I've, I've said in closing quite a bit. So tonight I'm not going to promise you anything. All right. I'm just going <laughs> to. I'm just going to preach what I have to say, and then when I'm done, we're going to pray. Is that all right? Um, tonight, I want to talk about um, looking at things. Uh, let's look at it different. And one of the things that I realize as I've studied the Bible throughout the years, and uh, as, I, as I read the scriptures, and as I've studied the scriptures and went to school and, and tried to be a student of the word, I'm certainly not where I need to be, but I'm not where I used to be. And so I am a student of the word. That means I never get done studying. I never exhaust the word of God because there is so much in the word of God to exhaust. How many would raise your hand and agree with the preacher tonight that when you read the Bible, it seems like there are times that things jump out at you that you never saw before. Amen. And, uh, and I, I, um, I, love, I love studying the word of God and I love people who study the word of God. And uh, I, I love seeing people their Facebook post about how they love the word. And Sister Kathy, you inspire me um, all the time about your love for the word of God. And uh, I think recently she decided to go to Bible college. And that tells you that no matter uh, what stage of life you may be in, you should never stop growing in the Lord. Can I hear an amen? And so uh, Sister Kathy is a wonderful preacher. Uh, Lewis, going to school, studying the Word of God. And I can just go around the room. And you certainly don't need to go to the school, to go to school or to an institution to study the Word of God. You don't need to do that. Um, you can study the Word of God right at, the, right at your house. If you, if you know the principles of hermeneutics, you can interpret the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit can help you. And you, you submit yourself to a mentor, you can go a long way. So I know great men and women of God who never went to an institution, but they were anointed. However, uh, that doesn't discount the honor of going to an institution because I believe God can use what you give Him. Amen? And so uh, sometimes uh, God will use a Peter... And Peter never went to school, but he was a learner and made a great impact in Christianity. But Paul was very educated. He also made a great impact in Christianity. So God uses different types of people. But no matter where you're at in your stage in your life, you need to make sure that you always stay teachable, that you always have a heart for God, and you're always pursuing after the Scriptures because the Scriptures is the foundation of of our faith and our practice. This is our roadmap, amen? And so this is the truth that we run to. And so as I have studied the scriptures throughout my years, I have noticed that as I have studied scriptures, I have looked at things wrongly. I have had to admit that maybe I looked at this wrong and maybe I didn't look at it in the context in which the author wrote it. And sometimes I believe that when we read the scriptures, sometimes I don't think that we actually 
take into consideration that if you're going to interpret the scriptures, you really need to look at it at the, through the eyes of the author that wrote that particular passage. What were they thinking when they wrote it over thousands of years ago? And sometimes when we read it, we're so Christianized that we read the Bible through a Christian lens and not necessarily through a Jewish lens. And so therefore we miss some we miss some great, great practical principles because we're seeing it through a uh, through Christian lens, and we're also seeing it through uh, an American lens. When we, you know, you and I, we live in one of the greatest countries of the world. We are very Christianized. We're very American. So when you read the Bible, we have a tendency at sometimes to look at the Bible through an American lens and through a Christianized lens. When really, when you go to the Bible, one of the very basic principles of hermeneutics is that you need to find out what the author's intent was when he wrote that particular chapter or that passage. That will help you. And number two, Scripture always interprets Scripture. If it's found in one location, it will be found in another. And sometimes when we preach messages and look at Scripture, uh, we always use the Scripture as in a practical application sense. When we read it, we're asking questions. Well, how does that apply to my life? That is good. That is very, very good. But I think to take Bible study to a deeper level, you got to look at the passage of Scripture and you got to ask yourself this question. What is the truth that is found in this passage? And is, there, is that truth found elsewhere in the Bible? Can I hear an amen? So that saves us from misinterpreting the scriptures. Now, let me say that again, because I don't want to throw you out into the deep water real quick tonight. I want to say this again. It's good when we read the scriptures to do a practical reading of it. How does that apply to my life? But if you want to go greater into study of scripture, you've got to find out what is the truth that the Lord is revealing in this passage, in this context, and is that truth found somewhere else in scripture? Is there a thread of truth? Is that truth found elsewhere? You know, and so that, that will help. And there's other keys to hermeneutics tonight that I won't discuss. But one of the things that I found that as I read scripture, I, I've had to admit that I've been wrong about some things because I didn't use the correct interpretation lens. I didn't use the incorrect interpretation keys to interpret scripture. And so um, I want tonight to look at just one story, maybe two, but uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to exhaust you tonight, but I just want to cause you to think tonight. And I am not, my goal tonight is not to preach like a Pentecostal. My goal tonight is just to teach. And there's a difference between that. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that Jesus went throughout Galilee preaching and teaching the gospel. And that's very essential to our growth and development that we have both. Preaching is to move us to change, while teaching is to change the way that we think. Both of them go hand in hand. How many's ever heard of a good Pentecostal sermon? You sit there at the seat, you, you start to cry, your, your emotions are kind of aroused. It's, 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 it's pulling you to change. Uh, a good sermon makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you shout all at the same time. You know, it moves you to change. And so therefore, you have great altar services because the preaching has caused emotions to be aroused in you to change your behavior, to change your life. While teaching is a process of changing the way that you think, and we need both of them. We need inspirational preaching, and we also need informative preaching. Some churches, is just all informative. It's just all informative, all 
all the time. Well, once in a while, you need inspiration, all right? They're both needed in the church. Inspiration and also informative. Uh, Preaching is almost a lost art nowadays. Public speaking is in. Lots of people know how to public speak and give a lecture, but preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit has almost become a lost art today because uh, we don't understand the essential of the element and the art of Pentecostal preaching. That is what draws people to this movement. The music, the preaching, the enthusiasm, the unction, the conviction, the the urgency. It moves people. It's not a dead religion. John, uh, John Wesley said that Methodism was the religion of the heart. It was more than the dead letter of the law. It was something that moved them. And that is why in the old Methodist church they had what we call camp meetings because they would come to camp meetings and pray to be sanctified. They would cry. It was it was moving. John uh, uh, George Whitfield was a great Methodist circuit rider preacher. He would preach under the power of God. And so John Wesley said this movement is the movement of the heart. There's It's more than just informative information. There's power and unction and urgency because God is living and moving and breathing. There is life in the gospel. Can I hear an amen? Can somebody say, raise your hand and say amen tonight? There's life in the gospel. And that is why I don't like dead church. I don't like dead people preaching dead sermons to dead people. I mean, if we're going to come to church and listen to a six-foot icicle, we should stay home tonight and eat uh, eat our Oreos and, and listen to another sermon on YouTube. Can I hear an amen? There's enough about that, all right? And so, and that is why Leonard Ravenhill said, what we need nowadays is preachers full of the power of the Holy Ghost who preaches on the unction of the power of the Holy Ghost who moves men and women to an altar of prayer. We used to have altars in our churches where we had seasons of prayer. Now we have moved from seasons of prayer to a moment of prayer. And now we go from a moment of prayer to a minute of prayer. Now we go to let's just bow our heads. You see, we have created a culture where we don't pray anymore because we don't feel like praying. We don't feel like going the church. America has, uh, the church has more of an American theology than it does a biblical theology. And if you're a student of the word of God, you got to get back to the Bible and you got to rearrange your worldview, the way you see things according to the scriptures and not by the way you feel. Because if you go by the way you feel, you wouldn't do anything. Can I hear an amen? Feelings are not factual. Feelings are fickle. You're there here one day and gone the next. Amen. One moment you're mad and the other moment you're happy. Amen. One moment you're singing, one moment you're cussing, you know, it's back and forth. You can't rely upon feelings. You got to rely upon something that's more sure. And that is the word of God that will never change. There are some Sundays I don't feel like going to church and some Sundays I don't even feel like I'm saved. But aren't you glad that your religion tonight is not based upon how you feel, but it's based upon what you know and is found in the word of God. Can I hear an amen tonight? It's found in the word of God. And so tonight, uh, as you, we look at a story, let's look at some things differently tonight. Now, there's one story that I find that is different and it's, it's found, it's a very, it's a story that's been celebrated in Christendom. We have celebrated this story. As a matter of fact, I think I've heard this story over and over and over. I think we've preached it so much. We've exhausted it. We've preached it so much. We've put it in the laundromat. We put it in the dryer. We put it in the washer. We put it on a hang. I mean, we have preached it. 
we have exhausted this story. And sometimes we turn the preacher off when you hear the story because you're like, I know what the story means. I've heard this story since I was a child. What are you going to bring, preacher? And, you know, and as a preacher, I've been guilty of that. I've been to church services, and and the preacher gets up, and he preaches a sermon. I'm thinking, well, I've heard this. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only belief. What are you going to tell me something new? How many would raise your hand and say, come on, you've had that attitude before. Like, what are you going to tell me? I've been in church all my life. And sometimes, listen to the listen to the pastor tonight. Sometimes if you come to the table like that, you're not going to receive anything. You know, it's very disrespectful to go to your mother's table after the mother is cooked all day and sit down at the table and fold your arms and say to your mama, mama, I had that last week. You made that a month ago. Or what, you know, it's the same old stuff that you used to, you know, that's very disrespectful after they cooked all day. Can I hear an amen? Am I preaching better than you're shouting tonight? Can you throw your head back and say amen tonight? Amen. Come on, everybody throw your head back and say amen tonight. Now, I would say touch your neighbor. <laughs> but uh, you can't touch your neighbor tonight, so don't do it. Unless you're married, you, you can do that. But, but don't, uh, you know, I was listening to a church the other day. I was listening to a church the other day, and, you know, it was an... Uh, uh, you know, a very enthusiastic church, and the pastor got up, and this was before COVID-19. He's preaching, he got the microphone, he got red in the face, I tell you, God's going to bring you out, and God's going to do this, and God's going to do that. He said, I need about 50 people get up and walk across the aisle and give somebody a high five and tell them God's going to bring you out. So they go across the aisle and give somebody a high five, and they go back to the seat, and I promise you, he kept on preaching. He said, I want you to turn around and go to the left side, find somebody else, and give them a high five, and Tell them God's going to bring them out. So, you know, all the church gets out, go to the left side and give somebody a high five. God's going to bring them out. No joke, he said. And I want you to get up out of your seat. He, five minutes later, he said, I want you to get up out of your seat. And I want you to march around this building seven times. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, that is a workout. That is price is right right there. Amen. But how he knows it's all right to be excited for Jesus. Amen. So as I look at this story tonight, I don't want you, one of the things and sometimes I feel like, you know, I, you know, and I think that some of you, some of you pastors and Kathy and some of you feel, some of you, Lewis, we've had this conversation. Sometimes you read the Bible all week and you get so excited. You feel like when you get the microphone, you're like, I don't know where you even start because I just feel so full. How many has ever felt that way before? And so, um, but one of the things that I, I discovered is that when we come to the house of God, um, you know, we partake of the word of God. And not only do we partake of the word of God, you know, we, we listen to his voice as we partake of the word of God. You know, if I go to your house, if I go to your house tomorrow, say, Pastor, come to my house. I want to invite you over for dinner. Okay? All right. So I, you know, I go over to your house. I'll respectfully walk in. And we will do two things probably at your house no matter how close I am to you or no matter if I'm not even close, we'll usually do two things at your house. Number one, we will fellowship, we'll talk, okay? We will talk, am I right? And number two, we will eat, okay? So those are two things we will do. This is God's house, okay? When you come to God's house, we're talking. And the early church said, after you're done talking, we should partake of communion, the bread and the juice. Let's eat together because this is God's house. Talking and fellowshipping at the table. And when, and because God is the host of his house and that's primarily what you do when you go to someone's house. You talk and you partake 
of communion. That's a sacrament. So you have those two things together. It's what the early church called. The early church called it like this. When we come together, we are going to participate in the, the liturgical worship of, of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And without those two things, it's not a valid church service. So that's why every Sunday they would eat at the table and they would talk the word. Eat at the table and talk of the word. Because that's what you do when you sit down at God's house. You hear what he has to say and you eat at his table. Can somebody throw your head back and look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to you tonight. He's talking to you tonight. All right. So uh, let's, 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 let's talk. Let's, let's talk about the word. Okay, now we're not going to come to the Lord's table tonight because, you know, we're fearful of COVID-19. But let me just throw this in here since I'm a preacher. If the blood of animals can deliver the, the Israelites from the land of bondage, I think that the blood of Jesus can help us in COVID-19. Somebody should just stood, right, stood to your feet and shouted right there. I said, if the blood of animals could have delivered the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh, don't you think that the blood of the lamb can help us in COVID-19? So, so let's, let's talk about the word. Let's talk. Okay, let's talk. And, and, and uh, talk about the word. And it's interesting to me, and I'm going to throw this in. It's interesting to me that the early church never had 40 minutes of worship. Worship wasn't singing. They would talk the word, preach the word, somebody read the scriptures. They would throw in a song. They would talk the word and throw in a song because to them, it was all worship. Not let's have worship and hear the word. It was all worship. Amen. Because they thought singing was also talking to God. And if you listen to some of our worship songs, they're not talking to God. They're talking to our feelings. Right? And that's why in the old time Pentecostal, we started shouting. I was once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And a little light from heaven filled my soul. You're not talking to God. You're talking about how sinful you were. You see what I'm saying? So, so worship is, that's why the pulpit's in the middle. Okay, Worship is letting God talk to it. So when you come to the word tonight, you've got to dismiss, dismiss, Who's up here? Turn your ears on and listen as the vessel is speaking the words of God. And that is why, listen to this, that is why some liturgical churches, you'll sit in your seats and say, how can that priest, how can those who are corrupt speak the word on Sunday? Because their thought is this, it doesn't matter how corrupt the vessel is, the word of God is still God's voice. You see what I'm saying? So no matter who is speaking, now I do believe the vessel needs to be pure. Let me just say that. Can I hear a man? God uses holy vessels, but I'm just telling you their mindset. I am encouraging you tonight that when the word goes forth, you give heed to it. It's like Ezra. Ezra stood up. The Bible says he stood up on a platform, all right? And everybody in the building, in the temple, stood up to hear the word of the Lord because they thought God is getting ready to speak to us. And that's why they stood to hear what God has to say. Amen. It's like when I come into your house, respect is you get up out of the recliner and you greet your guest because you want to have fellowship with them. So when we come to church, we stand in honor of his word because God is the host. 
and we are his guest, and we want to hear what the guest has to say to us. Somebody say praise the Lord. Now, this scripture tonight, I'm going to try and get this done real quick. The scripture tonight is found in Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke chapter 15 is a is parables. Jesus is teaching some parables. The first parable he talked about was the parable of the lost sheep. Everybody say that with me real quick. The parable of the lost sheep. And everybody say this with me. The parable of the lost coin. And everybody say this with me. The parable of the lost son. So I want everybody to say it with me, okay? Let's not act like we're on respirators. Let's say it like you're excited. Everybody say the parable of the lost sheep. Everybody say the parable of the lost coin. And everybody say the parable of the lost son. Now, when you look at this scripture, now for the sake of time, I'm not going to actually read the whole passage to you because I trust that you are a student of the word and you know what the passage says. So let's just take a little bit of a census tonight. If you have read Luke chapter 15 and you have a general understanding of the parable of the sheep, the coin, and this lost son, would you raise your hand right now? Amen. Raise your hand. So most of you have read that. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to highlight some things in the story to prove to you, I think that we can look at the story differently. Let's look at it differently. And as we look at it differently, let's see how God can speak to us as we look at the story differently. Now, the traditional view uh, and I'm going to I'm going to pinpoint what I'm going to pinpoint is the parable of the lost son. And you know the scripture says a certain man had two sons, right? And the Bible says, verse twelve, Luke fifteen twelve. The younger of them said to his father, "Give me the portion of goods that fall to me." So he divided his livelihood. And not too many days after that, the younger gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted all of his possessions with prodigal living. Now, you know the story. He goes and spends all that he has. He comes to his senses. He goes back to his father. And what does his father do? His father welcomes him home. And the father uh, welcomes him home. And the Bible says, verse 18, the younger, the younger son said, I'm going to arise and go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against you, sinned against heaven and earth. And the Bible says, verse 19, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. You see, when there's true conversion, your language would change. You see, he went from give me, give me, give me, and his heart changed, said, Lord, just make me, make me, make me. When there is a true conversion, when there's a true change, the attitude of give, give, give changes to make, make, make. Can I hear an amen? And so his attitude changed. So now, and that's a whole different story for sermon for someone else to preach. Verse number 20, and he arose and came to his father. He was a great deal off. You see the story. The father ran, kissed him. Verse 21, the son said, Father, I've sinned against you. Heaven and earth, I'm no longer be called worthy to be your son. Verse 22, the father said, bring the servants. Bring out the best robe. Put a ring on him. Put sandals on his feet. Verse 23, they, they started to have a party. Now, everybody say a party. They, had the, they, sled the, they, 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 they brought the fatted calf. They killed it. They ate it. They were being married. The son that was dead is alive. They're all being married. Verse 24, verse 20, let's see, verse number 25. Now the older son, as he drew near, heard in the house, heard music and dancing. Stop there. Now the older son who was in the field. Now the older son. Let's look at this differently. Now the older son 
who is in the field. Hmm. Why wasn't he invited to the party? Any father who loves their children would not just invite one son to the party. You would invite two of your sons to the party because you're making a celebration of the son that came home. This son was a part of the family. This son was a part of the descendant of his father. This son also deserved to have half of what his father had. But he was in the field, wasn't invited to the party. He heard music and heard dancing. It's no wonder the brother got an attitude. Verse 26, he comes and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He called one of the servants and said, why are they having a party without me? Now, stop. The traditional view of this message is this. God is the father. This is the traditional view that you've heard. God is the father and he loves you no matter what you have done. Now, how many would raise your hand and say that's the traditional view? Wait, raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand, okay? That's the tra- God is the father. He's full of love, mercy, and compassion with arms stretched out wide. And no matter how long you've been away from God, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've went, he loves you so much that he will always accept you back. That's the traditional view. And let me say this about the traditional view. That's a wonderful view to have. I'm not even against that view. I think there are some stories that could have a dual meaning. I think that's a wonderful meaning. I believe that God is compassionate. God is loving. And that no matter how far you have went, God will always accept you back. I, I think that's a wonderful traditional v- view to have. But I also know that, remember what I said a few moments ago? When you read the scriptures, you really need to look at it through the lens of who wrote it and the audience. Well, first century Jewish people are reading this, and they already knew that God is loving and compassionate and merciful. So why is Jesus telling a story of something they already knew? They knew that God was loving. They knew that God was compassionate. They knew that God would accept them back. They, they understood the promise that God gave to Abraham. They understood that after everything Israel has done, God was still compassionate. They understood that. But I want you to see that this parable comes at the end of the other two parables. So I believe that in the context, Jesus is really trying to tell us a truth. What is the truth in this passage of Scripture? And I believe that we can look at it differently and come with a truth that maybe you haven't seen before. Now, I want you to look at the first one, the first parable, because look at the two parables before it. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep. Everybody say that with me. The parable of the lost sheep. And look at the parable of the lost coin. Now, in both of those parables, both of those parables, right? Both of those parables, something was lost. And when it was found, the person rejoiced. And obviously, we think that's the traditional view here. Well, the son is lost. He's found. They have a party. So in all three stories, it looks like maybe that is the traditional view. That one sheep leaves the 99, he's found, and there's great rejoicing. The woman loses the coin, and she finds the lost coin out of the 10 coins, and there's great rejoicing. 
The son, there's two sons, one leaves home, comes back, and then there's great rejoicing. Now, that is a good view to have. That's a great view. I'm not against that view. That's a good traditional view. I think that's great. But tonight, I'm just asking you, let's see it differently. And the way I want you to see it differently is this. I want you to look at this. Sheep don't feel guilty about anything, okay? So in the first story, sheep don't feel guilty about anything, all right? They leave the 99. They don't feel guilty about it. They don't feel remorseful about it. They don't repent. They don't feel guilty about anything. Sheep are dumb. So, you know, they don't really care about leaving the, they don't really care about leaving the flock, all right? And uh, number two, um, the, the coin. Think about the coin. Well, coins don't need to repent, where in the story do you find coins repenting? So coins don't need to repent. Sheep are not necessarily repenting because they don't really feel guilty about anything. But yet the scripture says, likewise, verse 10, I say to you that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Okay, So that's a good traditional view, all right? So I, I'm not against that view. I'm just asking you to think of it differently, okay? Now, could it be, because when you go to the, the last verse here, the last parable, he says, a certain man had two sons. Now, the first, gen- first century Jewish people wouldn't be surprised by that because they understand throughout the Old Testament, two sons were mentioned a lot. You know, God, had, God always paired people together. Uh, for instance, Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Ephraim, Manasseh you know, go on and go on, you know. So they, that's not surprising to them that Jesus is telling a story with two sons in it, all right? It's not surprising to the first century Jews that God is compassionate and loving. That's a good view to have. I'm not against that. But I think that this point, verse 25, now the other son who was in the field, as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. I want to propose this question. Again, I want to reiterate this. The traditional view is not bad. It's a great view to hold. I want you to think about this differently. I want to spin it. Why wasn't this son invited to the party? And why was he in the field? And could it be that there is a truth in this story that maybe we need to pay attention to? And maybe the truth is this is that maybe the context of this whole thing in the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, maybe it's the art of counting. Maybe it's the art of counting. There's a hundred sheep, one leaves. There's ten coins, one's lost. There's two sons, one leaves. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's just not about forgiveness of your sins and rejoicing in heaven. Maybe God, Jesus in the flesh, is trying to tell them, because verse number 1, 15 verse number 1, Jesus, then they all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Maybe the context, maybe Jesus is trying to tell these Pharisees, you all are in a clique and you don't count everyone. 
The only people you count is people of like-mindedness. And you're accusing me of eating with sinners because I count the sinner. And could it be that God is saying to us tonight that before they repent, let's count them in the group? It's very hard to preach repentance when people feel outside of the group. It's very hard to pull people to altars of confession and repentance when they feel like they don't belong anyway. And why is it that we count those among us and we forget to count the homeless? We forget to count those who struggle with Addictions, same-sex attraction, we exclude them. And we just count those who we feel comfortable with. We are a fellowship of sinners before we are a fellowship of saints. Don't you ever forget that. We are a fellowship of sinners before we are a fellowship of saints. How, pastor, but I'm afraid if I count them and include them, they might contaminate me. No, no, no. It's called the principle of contact without contamination. Jesus sat with the sinners, ate with them, but he wasn't contaminated by them. You can come in contact with people and they won't contaminate you. And I'm asking you, and that is why, that's why the church world in general has understood the principle of small groups. Because they understand the principle of small groups is that I invite the sinner into my house and I am hospitable to him or her. And I make them feel like they are a part of us before I ever bring them to a corporate worship service. It's the art of eating together and fellowshipping together. But nowadays we don't do that because our house is not a house of hospitality. Our house has become a sanctuary for selfishness. We don't want people to dirty our carpet. We don't want people to dirty our thing. And listen, as a Christian, nothing you have belongs to you. It belongs to God. The car that he's given you, you should use it for the gospel. The house he's given you, use it for the gospel. Invite somebody. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He counted them. He ate with them. And there's something about sitting down at the table with somebody that's not of the same faith and listening to their heart. Somebody asked Mother Teresa, what is love? And Mother Teresa said it's to listen. There's something powerful about sitting down at the table, opening your heart to someone and having them listening to you. What would happen if all of us just opened our house or took somebody out to eat and opened your, have them to open their heart, befriend somebody, count them a part of the family. Because you see, even if you had a son and a daughter that left the family, you don't discount them. They're still counted in your family. Then why is it in the church we don't count the sinner? Because our concept of family is messed up. The American church and the American mindset of biblical theology is This is mine. I've worked for it. When everything you have should be a resource for Jesus Christ. It should be a resource for Jesus.
Young Yi Cho, the pastor of the world's largest church, has thousands of deacons and deaconess. And they use the principle of hospitality, inviting the unsaved. Doesn't need to be your house. Could be the park. But just count them. Maybe we need to invest before we invite. Maybe, because what nowadays we do, we invite and then we decide to invest into someone if we count you in the group. But maybe we need to change the theology and maybe we need to start investing before we invite them to the church. You see, what kind of revival would break out in the American church if we just started thinking differently? Thinking differently. You have the power. Listen to me. You have the power to be a world changer. You don't need this mic. You don't need this pulpit. You, you can create your own microphone and your own pulpit. And you, The world is changed by people who believe they can change it. And I'm asking you that maybe, maybe we need to start investing before we invite. Maybe we need to start counting people that's not in our clique and group. I noticed this principle when I was praying a few months ago and I heard the Lord say to me, Josh, you don't have no sinner friends. Everybody you have is Christians and pastors and mentors and those who can speak into your life to make you better. Oh, I go out to eat, you know, tip them well, you know, try to share the gospel. Don't I, Tiffany? Try hard. But I haven't really befriended somebody. Like, I want you to be my friend. I haven't went out of the way to try to invest my life into somebody that don't know Jesus. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the American church has this mindset. Look at it. I dare you, go home tonight, go on live stream and look at all the services. That's what um, Tom Rainer in his growth book says, his church growth book, he says, we have developed an attractional church service. Screens, lights, you know, attractional. So we've taught our people this. The pastor says, go and invite somebody to church. So we invite them to church and we give them an attractional service to attract them. Then the pastor preaches the gospel and we hope and pray that they come to the front and repent and become a Christian. And we lead them in a prayer and we invite them to a small group. I'm not saying that's wrong. I just don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's wrong. Because you know why I don't think that's biblical? Because that saves, you know what that does? That's actually saying the soul winner of the church is the pastor. And all you got to do is just make sure they get to the church. And we're not training our people how to lead somebody to Jesus because we're asking the pastor to do it and relying upon attractional service to do it. And so therefore we've developed a church and a culture of people that don't even know how to bring anybody to Jesus or to lead anybody to Jesus or no even know how to pray a sinner's prayer over anybody because we're always bringing somebody to an attractional service hoping that the pastor preaches a good message and hoping that they repent. But I've come to tell you that you have the power you are anointed not just me you are anointed to preach the gospel you are anointed to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover
He has given you the power to do it. Let's change our theology from an American mindset to a biblical mindset. And that is why in the Bible that the early Christians went on the streets and got them saved. They brought them to church. You know what they did, Sister Raylene? They baptized them in front of everybody. Because it showed the community. Now we bring them to church and get them saved. And, and then maybe we baptize them after we have convinced them that they need to be baptized. That's, I don't know. Could we look at things different? I think that maybe we should. I think we should. Amen. Lift up your right hand and say, Lord, let me look at things differently. Hallelujah. Let me look at things differently. If you've joined us on live stream, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate you so very much. At this time, we're going to go to prayer, and we encourage you to pray with us. Uh, we're going to shut down the live stream, but we encourage you to pray together as your family. And uh, as a corporate body, we're going to come up around the front, and we're going to pray together. So, church, would you give a great big hand clap to our live stream service or our people that's joined us tonight by live stream? Amen. Would you tonight, there's plenty of room, no pressure, plenty of room for you to.